For those of you who may not know me, I'm Pastor Dan of Queen Anne Lutheran Church. This is arguably our most anticipated forum series, at least of the year, if not of my entire time at, uh, at Queen Anne Lutheran. The series itself is called Demons, Darkness, and the Devil. And we're looking at it from four perspectives. Uh, one from uh, a Jewish perspective, that's that was Dr. Beatrice Lawrence. Uh, today, a Catholic perspective, and then Next week, I'm going to talk about the demonic from a contemporary Lutheran perspective. So we have uh, what I think is hopefully an exciting series, and we are delighted that you are joining us. The series itself will be recorded and will be available later today on our YouTube page just or channel. Just go to Queen Anne Lutheran on YouTube and you'll find it. You'll also find other previous forums there, including Dr. Lawrence's from these last two weeks. Um, the series will conclude, as I said, with uh, Lutheran perspectives. We're also going to look at the New Testament specifically. So again, we have a lot in store. Without further ado, then, I would like to introduce our speaker for today. As some of you know, I uh, uh, taught at Seattle University, and it was a, a joy of mine to do so. I was also uh, I also did my college years at two uh, um, Jesuit universities, Santa Clara and the University of San Francisco. And when I was ordained, a Jesuit wrote my letter of call and identified me as a Jesuit Lutheran, which I take as the highest compliment. Uh, the Jesuit we're welcome, welcoming today is Father Bill Watson of Seattle University. He is going to look at uh, possessions and exorcisms He's done uh, a lot of work on the Ignatian um, spiritual exercises, uh, developing programs and retreats used today by Georgetown University, Seattle University, Santa Clara University, Gonzaga University, and Loyola College in Baltimore. He launched the Sacred Story Institute in 2011, a nonprofit promoting millennium, third millennium evangelization for the Society of Jesus and the Church by using the examination of conscience of Father of St. Ignatius. Uh, Father Watson received his Doctor of Ministry in 2009 from the Catholic University of America and was before that a student at the Western Jesuit School of Theology where he may have run into Father Roger Haight, um, who is uh, quite well known uh, for his work, especially uh, in, uh, in terms of uh, the theologian Paul Tillich, uh, one of ours uh, from the Lutheran tradition. So it is my absolute pleasure, uh, and I'm so excited about this, to, uh, to introduce you to Father Bill Watson, uh, who will talk today about evil and the demonic from a Catholic perspective. And if I can, I would like to divide my presentation into three segments. I want to give you the official Catholic perspective on uh, the fall of the angels and the fall and the original sin, uh, which invites evil into the world. And I always like to look at it this way. I like folksy examples. Uh, we've all seen vampire movies and we all know vampire lore, that the vampire can only come into your house if you invite him across the threshold. So it takes the personal invitation. And so we, I think we need to look at, you know, in the midst of kind of the orthodox theology that human persons are made in the image and likeness of the creator uh, we, we are enfleshed spirits. We are material and spiritual. And the demonic is only spiritual, the spiritual hierarchies of the darkness. And they could only gain access into the material realm 
through the material, through the spiritual invitation of those made in God's image and likeness. So evil can't just come into the world. It has to be invited in and it had to gain its access through the spiritual dimension of human persons. So that gets around the, doc the doctrine of original sin. So the church believes that there were, the, that we say in the creed on Sundays, that God made everything visible and invisible. And the invisible are the spiritual hierarchies of the angels, the archangels. And the church believes that uh, all beings were made in freedom, uh, but they also had the freedom to reject God, which is kind of the scary dimension of human freedom and angelic freedom. We can say no to pure love. Because pure love cannot force uh, adherence to love. It has to be willing to let it be rejected. So behind the disobedience of our first parents is a, is a, is a lurking voice. So I'm going to talk about the fall first here and the church's teaching. Then my second presentation is going to be on the structure of temptation. How the pattern of the first sin, as recorded in Genesis is repeated in every single sin any individual makes in their entire lives. There's a structure to it. Uh, and the demonic has a structure, and uh, it's not random. It's very intentional. And then the third part, I'm going to take you through. Uh, I shared the stage of a conference in 2009 on spiritual warfare. Uh, and one of the presenters was Father Dennis McManus, who teaches at Georgetown. He is the point person for the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops on Catholic-Jewish relations, and he's also a trained exorcist. And so I'll give you his perspective in terms of the doorways that the demonic uses through the human person to gain access to our lives. And then a, a, a final presentation on uh, demons and the environment, places that they like to go. So, so we'll do it in those three parts. So the original sin, we believe uh, that the, our first primordial parents were tempted, and they were tempted by the demonic. Uh, I have a good uh, Protestant uh, evangelical friend of mine, and we had many, many conversations of how, how could people who enjoyed the pure love of God allowed such a choice to happen? But it would have had to have happened in a way that was going to augment the good that they had. So they had to be seduced to think that somehow by choosing this, uh, it's going to be better than even what they have. So it's a, it comes back to a reference to self. So the, the choice to invite uh, in is what we call the, the, the fall, the free choice of created spirits who radically and irrevocably rejected God and his reign. We find a reflection of that rebellion in the tempter's words to our first parents, you will be like God. The devil has sinned from the beginning. He is the father of lies, as scripture says. The irrevocable character of their choice did not affect the infinite divine mercy of God, however. And if any of you have seen the, uh, the fresco of Fra Angelica on the, of the Annunciation of the Angel Gabriel to the Blessed Mother, it's a tableau. And in the far left, you see our two parents, uh, primordial parents in shame, cowering and being ushered out of the, 
uh, the Garden of Paradise uh, by an angel. And over them is the Trinity with the Father at the top. And then there's a shaft of golden light going through time. And in the shaft of light with uh, Fra Angelico is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is between the angel Gabriel and the Blessed Mother. So at the very, very moment of the collapse of the fall, the tragedy of original sin, the chaos, the devastation, the plan was initiated. And the, that, that fresco is a beautiful image of the immediacy of God to rescue the children made in his own divine image. So the plan is put in place from the very, very beginning. And God is going to choose us as the participants in the renovation of the world. So I like to tell people as catastrophic as original sin was, we say at Easter in our, uh, in our services, O Felix culpa, O happy fault of Adam that gained for us so great a savior. So that God is going to one up the demonic and actually make the persons made in the image and likeness of God participants in the renovation and redemption of the human race. And he allows that to happen through free human participation, just as free human participation said no to God in paradise. So we're actually elevated in God's plan. And it's, it's, it's the authority that a good parent, um, a mother or father, gives to their children by letting them become participants in the life of the family, by giving them authority, by giving them choice, uh, by giving them the proper place for them to grow uh, and to be participants in the life of the family. So the, the situation of sin is disastrous. Uh, we know from uh, our friend St. Paul that when sin entered the world, so did death. So what people oftentimes don't reflect on is that we were, we were made immortal. Human persons made in God's image and likeness were immortal beings. And it was the sin that brought death into the world. And the, the doctrine of original sin being trans, trans, uh, transmission throughout the ages, you know, the inheritance of original sin, I like to look at it this way. And I always like to use an example uh, of uh, young people being in love for the first time. And I like to use this as an image of the love of Adam and Eve in paradise for God, for each other, and for everything that they had made. When you are in love, the whole world is beautiful. You have incredible energy. You can stay awake for hours. You don't even need to eat. So there is something about the, the power of love that energizes the entire psychological, physiological, spiritual dimension of the human person. And we're made in that image and likeness. So that is not, uh, that's not uh, too hard to believe that love would do that. Love shared and love given. But when love is broken, if there's a betrayal in love, if there is a violation, uh, something happens, then you feel terrible. Uh, your body is susceptible to sickness. You're tired. The world is not beautiful anymore. All you see is the, is, is the problems, uh, and the world starts to close in on you. 
And we actually know that our immune system gets compromised when those things happen. So I like to look at the original sin from a, from kind of like a medical physiological perspective in terms of what it did to the human person, because being made immortal, uh, the only way that we could become mortal was that the whole system, the physiological, mental, spiritual matrix of human nature made in God's image and likeness as physical and spiritual, uh, the matrix had to be smashed. And the demonic knew that would happen. The, the demon is incredibly intentional of knowing the devastation that would happen when we let go from God and all of the evil that would. It's like dropping uh, poison into a water supply and knowing what it's going to do eventually. There's going to be a, a progression of diseases and cancers that are going to spread out from it. And it comes from that one that one act, action of the demonic to fracture uh, human nature, to divide us. As Jeremiah says, you know, how tortured is the human heart? Who can understand it? Uh, I do spiritual direction. People oftentimes don't know why they do what they do. They don't even know themselves. And that is all a part of the kind of the fracturing of human consciousness and spirituality and our physical being through the transmission of sin which brought death into the world. So uh, original sin is transmitted because the fracturing of human nature is transmitted. And we're, we're susceptible to disease, even in utero. And a child can be born with physical defects and those physical defects can make them the target of bullying in school. So, and, and we know we're gonna die and children get the flu and they get colds and there's childhood cancers. So all of these things, the smashing of the human matrix, spiritual uh, and material, is the transmissibility of original sin through the millennia. So uh, the very first baptism I did, I was uh, a newly ordained priest and I was at St. Joseph's Parish here in Seattle. Uh, and I went to, uh, I got a call from a Swedish hospital. A mother had had uh, twins, a boy and a girl, and the, the boy was going to die, and they were looking for a priest to come. It's my very first baptism. So, and I'd just come in from the beach, and I was all full of sand, and I did not want to go. So I go to the hospital, and I'm getting ready to do the baptism. They bring the baby off of the, um, out of the incubator, and the mother at the last minute would not let me baptize her child. She was Catholic, and I said, um, is there a reason? She said, he's done nothing wrong. So she couldn't get her head around the idea of his innocence and the fact that her, this was her first pregnancy. She couldn't see that her son needed anything to be forgiven because he was going through this experience. So you can understand that. Uh, but the church, but the fact that he was dying is a sign that he needed that blessing. So anyway, but you understand kind of the human, the human perspectives of that. So Father Watson, if, if I may, um, that's probably the best uh, summary of the transmission of original sin I've ever heard. This talk about how it's the fracturing itself that is transmitted from generation to generation. I'm wondering, though, if you could go back just for a second, not to original sin, but to God. You mentioned that at the time of the fall, 
a plan of salvation was initiated by God. And I'm curious, first of all, if I heard you correctly, and second of all, does that suggest that God is capable of change, that God, as it were, can change God's mind when it comes to uh, the fall of creation in this case and the, the attempt to working with us restore it? I think that God's intention is, uh, is eternal. Uh, it was intended to uh, create beings made in the divine image and likeness as a free choice to participate and to share in that love. And that nothing is going to stop that from happening. So God, God doesn't change. God uh, allows the plan to change based on human choice. Mm, okay. So you can look at the Old Testament. You know, the, uh, the Jewish people were not to have kings. And they were told what would happen to them if they chose kings. And they chose kings anyway. They chose to be ruled. And the history of the Old Testament is rife with all the destruction that happened to the Jewish people as a result of that choice. But what does God do? God takes the Davidic line, King David, and makes him the one through whom the Savior will be born into the world. Hmm. So uh, God takes the tragedy of sin and flips it through grace and turns it into that, oh, Felix Copa, oh, happy fault. And hmm. we have crucifixes in our uh our, our churches and uh, many of the uh, fathers of the church say that Jesus in paradise will bear his wounds. His, his holy wounds will be visible because they are the glory of the father through which the human race was redeemed. And so that's something. So God doesn't change. We change and God alters the plan to make it fit because uh, God's, ultimate intention will not be sundered. It will not be taken down, even by evil. And so that's the last part of this first presentation is that even though we disobeyed, God will find a way. We're not totally corrupt. Uh, we, we still all will die, uh, but grace will be sufficient for us to attain the original blessing that was intended in terms of eternity with God uh, and with the with the chosen and with the elect. So that's the end of my my first presentation. We we'd, uh, we were not abandoned to the power of death without grace being present to us. And I had a, a colleague at Seattle U when I asked him about the prospect of human beings, say for example, through climate change or nuclear war, of destroying uh, our the creation and with it God's. Uh, plan, and I asked him if God's will in this case could be uh, um, thwarted, and he said, "Not thwarted, but delayed." Now that was really interesting. Yeah, um, we have a few questions from uh, from participants. One comes from Nancy. Good morning, Father Bill. She says we are taught as Christians to welcome the stranger as Jesus did, but how can we tell if we are allowing the devil to enter, as you stated? Well, I think that takes a, uh, a life of prayer and discernment. And uh, you have to be, you just have to be discerning. And if you're sensitive enough spiritually, you can sense when something is awry with somebody. So, hmm. I'd have to take four hours to go into that to, to do it justice, <laughs> but I'll just leave it just simple like that. Right? That, that might be a good, uh, a good advertisement for the, uh, the lay um, version of the Jesuit exer or the spiritual exercises and the retreat, uh, the, the right. practice of discernment. 
Uh, Jennifer asks, uh, is evil already here because of what Adam and Eve did? Yeah, evil, um, is, evil is present everywhere. Right. And I will get into its most uh, common manifestation in the third part of my presentation. Great. What I'd like to talk about now, the second part, is the structure of temptation. And how we are tempted mirrors the pattern of what happened to our primordial parents in the, in the book of Genesis. Uh, and so the first, the first level, the first piece of the original sin was disobedience. They were told not to do something. And we've all seen the image of the angel and the devil on the different shoulders, you know, whispering into the ear. So the first part of the sin was in that story was for our primordial parents to even give ear to the voice of the demonic, to put it on the same level as God's voice, to give it equality and to, to entertain the idea of what was being proposed. So that is disobedience and uh, I will show, tell you very quickly how it's mirrored in the, you know, the temptations of Christ in the desert, how he turns them back as he begins his public ministry. So the first level is listening anew, and it's the loss of obedience. So they are proposed, they're, they are giving voice, they're, they're allowing the voice of something that is not God to have the same level and to weigh it with God's voice. And so that's the first level of the original sin. Uh, the serpent must insert himself between God and the person. And he does that by getting them to listen to this plan. The temptation for it to gain foothold in paradise, the serpent must first establish a relationship uh, with Adam and Eve. And he does this by speaking to them. And Adam and Eve opened themselves to temptation by listening to the serpent. By their very listening, the tempter, they place his voice and suggestions, like I said, on equal footing. Uh, we think of Adam and Eve as, as adults, but our understanding of adult has, has been corrupted by the history of so much sin in the world. Adam and Eve were innocent, like children who are innocent. Evil always seeks to corrupt the innocent by clever and subtle invitations, which is why the abuse crisis in the church, uh, the child trafficking, any sin that goes against the innocence of children, we find it most abhorrent because I think in our spiritual DNA, we reflect on the original sin of the violation of the innocence of our first parents. The corruption begins first by getting them to listen to new ideas that ever so subtly violate the order of God's creation plan and God's mission. Listening indicates their openness to a relationship with the tempter and displaces God's voice as the only voice of the heart. The Latin word for obey means to listen deeply. And this is precisely what Adam and Eve have now failed to do, inviting their hearts and minds. A new voice divides their hearts and minds. In essence, inviting this other voice in is a failure to be obedient to God. It's 
So this first level of sin is a violation of the vow of obedience, where Adam and Eve were to listen only to the voice of God. And it's the great Sheba of Israel. Hear, O Israel, there is only one God. So all the call is to go back to the original obedience of the paradise and the first parents. So that is the first part of it. So as a child, you're always told, you know, listen to your mother and father, do what they say. And there's always a first time as young children in the possession of free will and reason where we first hear and listen to another voice that's telling us to do something that our parents have told us, don't do that. It'll hurt you. Yeah, but we can't see it's going to hurt us. A kid on a tricycle with a nice, big, steep drive driveway, but there's a busy street. Don't do that. Ride your tricycle on the flat, boring patio in the backyard. But it's going to be so fun. So the voice of God saying, don't do that. And that's part of the story of Genesis. What have you done? You know. What have you done? Oh my God! What has happened? So it's the it's the it's the heart and the mind and the soul and spirit of a father or a mother who suddenly and dramatically sees that something terrible has happened to their beloved child. So that is why I think Fra Angelico's theology of his fresco is so, still so powerful. So what happens then after you have entertained a voice that is not God? You are given a proposition, and you're invited to look at something that you hadn't even seen before, hadn't even paid attention to it, about that apple. It's not about the apple. It's about the choice. So the second level of the original sin is seeing anew, seeing what you hadn't seen before, and it's the loss of chastity. It's lusting after something that you're not supposed to even pay attention to. So after listening to the voice of the tempter, Adam and Eve are invited to look with different eyes on their paradise. The tempter proposes that they see the fruit of the tree of good and evil as good for eating. Getting no immediate response, the tempter appeals to human pride, instructing them that they will be like gods if they eat of the fruit. And pride is simply self-reliance. In all of my works, I don't use the word pride anymore as kind of the, uh, the greatest of the seven deadly sins. I use the word narcissism because pride has lost all of its meaning. You know, when I used to fly on Alaska Airlines, you would get coffee and it said Alaska is proud to serve Starbucks coffee. So pride's lost all of its sense of meaning. So narcissism is what I use uh, for, the, for the sin of self-reliance. Surely you won't die. Surely you won't die. So you have to then ponder the choice. So it's, it's an appetite is created, which then invites the third level of sin, which is uh, acting anew. And it's a violation of poverty because you take what does not belong to you. So they, they entertained. Obedience, loss of obedience. They see with new eyes, uh, lust, loss of chastity. And they take what does not belong to them, uh, which is uh, the loss of poverty. And you see in the temptation uh, in, the, in the desert with Jesus, Jesus reverses the order of all of those temptations before he begins his public ministry. 
So it begins with turning the stones into bread. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So that's the poverty. He was being invited to take something. Uh, and then he takes them up to the highest temple to do something kind of, kind of a lusting thing, jumping off the temple. You know, you want to catch people's attention as the son of God. We'll go to the biggest city in the world and jump off the temple and everybody will come and worship you. Uh, and there's a lust that's in there. So Jesus says no to that. And then it goes back to the original sin of obedience and reversing that, taking up to the highest mountain. If you bend down and worship me, I will give you all of this. And then he banishes Satan from the site. So Jesus reverses at the very beginning of his public ministry. And we know that the, the imagery of the desert in scripture is the, is the area of chaos where evil is entered. So he enters into the, into the chaos, into the experience of what has happened through the millennia of the sin, you know, reaching into every dimension of human creation. And he begins his ministry by altering the, that first original sin and the loss of poverty, poverty, chastity, and obedience, which are, you know, the great uh, uh, categories of uh, holiness in the church. So that's a short end of uh, my second part. And the third part, I'd like to get into the common doors. Uh, that May I interrupt just for a second? We have a few more questions now about the second part, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, when, first of all, that your point about the temptation of Jesus makes me think of Paul quoting the Christ hymn in Philippians 2, where it says Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but empties himself, taking the the form of a, of a servant, uh, it seems to be the, the way to resist that temptation. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and also, Jesus never did anything on his own authority. He always only did it on the, on the invitation of the Father. Mm -hmm. And he's giving us a model of obedience in doing that. Right. Yeah. Uh, two questions, one from Johnny. Uh, he asks, is, it's about deep listening. How can we come back into original obedience, listening out of and from that space of pure love? Uh, it takes daily prayer and discernment. You know, my whole institute is built around Ignatius's spiritual tool called the examination of conscience. Uh, and he gives a very strategic 15-minute uh, prayer that he wants Jesuits to do twice daily uh, that keeps your heart and your mind on true north. And lets you understand if you're wavering in any way, but it takes it takes it takes quiet and silence. I say in my book, I'm just I gave Reverend Peterson a copy. I've, I've created a copy of my adult program uh, called Forty Weeks. Uh, created a Protestant, uh, Protestant version uh, called Discovery, Devotion, and Discernment: A Discipleship Journey. So that's out for comment and endorsement now by Protestant pastors. But it takes daily prayer and listening to sermon. And if you get my book, Sacred Story, which I don't have a copy right here in hand, I trace Ignatius's conversion process. And the only way he was able to get through the, the terrible uh, shoals and uh, jagged mountaintops of his conversion was by being given insights on what to do. And all of those insights became then incorporated into his rules for the discernment of spirits and the spiritual exercises. So you can't grow in the Christian faith without understanding how to undo the temptations and understanding how discernment works. And St. Ignatius, for those of you who don't know, is the founder of the Jesuit order. 
I used to tell my students when teaching some of this material in the classroom that if he had been texting, none of the insights he gained would have ever been heard or received. So I think it's, it's important to, uh, to recognize our context and, and find places of quiet and solitude where we can, where we can engage these exercises. One more question from Nancy. Uh, she couldn't resist. She says, to play the devil's advocate, uh, oops, <laughs> the taking of the fruit by Adam and Eve seems to be a minor offense. Uh, it, it's not a minor offense if you look at it in terms of its consequences, its historical consequences, the evolution of evil in the world and the, the crashing of the matrix of the human person, body, mind, and spirit, and death and destruction. So it looks innocent. It seems minor, and that's how the demon always works. It's not that bad. Surely you won't die. I'll give you just this little folksy example. So there was, in my house growing up in Spokane, Washington, there was a dilapidated house that had broken windows, and uh, it was painted chartreuse, and it was the only kind of scary place on a two-block stretch. And every parrot said, do not go in there. And they, you know, there's broken glass, there's nails, you know, there could be poisons in there. So they're saying that for your own good. But, uh, and I never had a desire to go into it. So one of my neighborhood pals, Paul, one day said, he said, hey, we're going to go in the house. You want to come with us? And he said, why not? I said, my parents said I'm not supposed to. Uh, sissy, you think you're going to die? So then, you know, I never even planned to go in there because I was listening to my parents, never even wanted to do it. And then I am given an invitation and a taunt and the very same thing. You think you're going to die? Surely you won't die. So it looked innocent, but look at the consequences. And it wasn't just an apple. It was it was it was turning away from the voice of God. So uh, the third part, the, uh, the five most common doors through which the demonic enters a human experience. And, and number one is by far the most prevalent. Uh, we're all curious about the demonic and devils and things like that. But evil works its greatest power just through sin and temptation. I ran retreat programs at Georgetown University. I uh, tried to get people to come on five-day silent Ignatian retreats. And uh, the way that evil worked there is, you know, people would, you know, Father, I'm, I'm just that, not that, I'm not a silent type of person. That's kind of this type of person. Uh, and then I was hearing deeply over two years, and I was realizing that people were becoming afraid to go because they thought God was going to ask them to do something that was going to make their lives miserable. So they didn't want to hear God's voice. And they were also hearing, you will be unhappy if you do this. So one of the main ways, 99.9% .9 of how, how the demonic works, is to get us simply not to listen to the voice of goodness. And that can keep us in a stasis of depression, sadness, despair. So sin and temptation uh, are the main avenues through which the demonic uh, keeps us away from God. Uh, we say classically in Catholicism, probably Protestantism, the, uh, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then the world that has been disconnected from the holiness of God. Uh, the flesh, 
the concupiscence, which has made uh, easily tempted. If you're sick, if you have the flu, it's hard to do good things or to keep your tongue in check if you're feeling bad and, and the devil. So the values of the world cut us off from God. The flesh is our affinity and our concupiscence. And the devil has a plan for each one of us. He reads us. He knows our weaknesses. And the more you habitually practice what tradition calls mortal sin, sin which cuts you off from a life of sanctifying grace and sin which can make you subject to say no to God in the end permanently, the further we're dragged from God, the more we open ourselves up to the dark kingdom. And C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letters had a wonderful, uh, I use this all the time, um, when he's talking to Wormwood, and because he's upset with Wormwood, he said, you young demons don't know what you're doing. He says, all you have to do is to get the humans to forget that God exists. He says, the way that we're going to do that is to make the world so noisy that they won't be able to hear their hearts. He says, we have our best specialists working on it, but we're not quite there. And that was in the 1940s that he wrote that. So the noise and chaos around us, the, 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 the illusion that we're doing highly productive things by being constantly connected uh, is an illusion. And so we need the quiet and the distraction. So I, I tell people, I said, why is it so hard for me to do a 15-minute prayer discipline when I can binge watch Diners, Drivers, and Dives for you know five episodes in a row? But just doing that one 15-minute listening session is so difficult. It's because it's working against kind of the habitual laziness that, uh, that we've come uh, in, in contact with. The fathers say that, uh, the early fathers of the church say that both angels and demons surround deathbeds. He said it's best to renounce all evil, confess your sins before you die. And there's all sorts of stories of the deathbed struggles of saints. And probably one of the most contemporaneous ones is Therese of Lisieux, who died in the, the late 18, uh, 1800s. Uh, and there are more churches named after uh, St. Therese than any saint in the history of the church. Could have been a, a building explosion in the, uh, in the 50s when uh, she was made a saint. But she had tuberculosis. And one of the things she told the nuns, she says, never leave a sharp object by a deathbed. Because she was terrified that she was going to end her tubercular pain or inability to breathe by killing herself. So there's always around, the, the, the fathers say, around death, deathbeds uh, are angels and demons uh, and waiting you. And it can be the time of your greatest weakness. And I always like to ask the question to people, I think my parents' generation, they were always afraid of doing something bad, you know, something lustful and sinful and going to hell that God was going to make them go to hell. I don't think anybody's afraid of going to hell anymore. I think everybody thinks they're going to just go to heaven by, by, by the fact that they're just who they are, you know? Uh, so the question that I like to propose to people to kind of find out where their, what the spiritual temperature is, is this. I said, if you were to give if, if God were to give you the choice of eternal life through the forgiving of your sins, would you accept him forgiving your sins? 
And I oftentimes hear back, well, what, what do I have to be forgiven for? And I think that's human pride. And I think it's also a heart disconnected from truth and reality. And so I can see that we maybe are setting up a whole generation of people who are so, so self-sufficient, so narcissistic, that in the end, they could say, why do I need your forgiveness? Who are you? Get out of my sight. So I think that's the real question now that we're facing it. So, uh, so temptation. Uh, the second major door through which uh, the demonic can enter us is through our wounds, our wounded lives, our emotional wounds, our physical woundedness. We can have a tendency to turn ourselves into the victim that never heals. Uh, when I talk about narcissism in my work sacred uh, story, I describe two different types of narcissism, um, aggressive narcissism and passive narcissism. The aggressive narcissism is, um, in fact, I'll just get the little card out here really quickly. The aggressive narcissist self-identifies as a winner. The passive narcissist self-identifies as a victim. The passive narcissist is determined to have others notice how special he or she is by pointing to their unfair suffering. The aggressive narcissist is determined to have others notice how special they are by defeating all opponents. So it's the same type of, of sin, only it gets manifested in different ways. And I'll, I'll send uh, Reverend Peterson a copy of this and he can share that with you. There's about uh, 15 different things for each one. So uh, Father McManus says that, that hell is the kingdom of unhealed wounds of people who refused to let Jesus heal them because people can choose to love or to be loved or choose not to love and not to be loved. So that's the, the second door, our wounds, our wounds. And the wounds are emotional, spiritual, physical, sometimes a combination of all. I'm working on a project now with wounded warriors uh, called War and Grace, trying to help soldiers identify uh, God's presence in the midst of battle. And we have some couple of stories up on our web website under media. The, the bottom button is War and Grace. We're getting uh, veterans to write about their experience of war and trying to get them to the point of healing by realizing that God was present even in the midst of battle, in the midst of terrible things. So the third door is inheritance, uh, and this is a dangerous one. Uh, as the practice of the occult becomes more widespread, more and more children are opened up to the demonic at a young age. Uh, Benedict, when he, before he was pope, did an interview with Peter Sewald, his German uh, um, person who does almost all the books that uh, Benedict has done, all the interview books. And I think he said this in the 1980s, that the places where uh, witchcraft and occultism were growing the quickest were in the two most technologically advanced countries in the world, the United States and Western Germany. And the more people get into the, the technology and that somehow we're going to be saved through all our own creation, uh, the further we get from God, but the further we get from true spiritual inspiration, so people are seeking the spiritual because we are spiritual, and they're unwittingly opening themselves up to forms of uh, spirit power that are uh, akin 
and linked to the kingdom of darkness. Uh, in most Catholic seminaries in the United States and in religious orders, one of the, one of the questions that is asked people when they are applying for priesthood or religious life is whether any member of their family, current or in the past, practiced uh, the occult, Santeria, voodoo, um, uh, enculturated occult practices, white witchcraft, Ouija boards, channeling, energy arts, uh, Reiki, tarot cards. And they're asked that question because they're experiencing that children who have grown up in those environments have bad things that are happening to them without them even being aware that they were exposed to those types of things. So that's uh, the demonic can enter through inheritance. It's, it's a kind of a form of uh, uh, original sin being transmitted through kind of the sins of the parents, opening children up to things. And Father McManus told some very, very powerful stories of uh, seminarians who, like one seminarian who, when he would come to mass, he would had a very hard time listening to the gospel. And he wanted to go, but he had a real hard time. And they had to do a uh, re renounce, reject, and rebuke from an experience he had as a child uh, that he wasn't even aware of that he had. And then Father McManus, who is an exorcist, says, now he says, now take that needle out. He said, well, there's no needle there. He says, just take it out. So he, he kind of ritually went like that and pulled the needle out. And he said he screamed and shouted. And he wasn't even aware that this was present in him. And from that point forward, he had no difficulty sitting through the mass and doing what he wanted to do. So things can happen to us that we're not aware uh, through uh, the atmosphere. Uh, and he says that both adults and demons like to seduce children. They love innocence. And it's a pattern of, like I said, of the first sin against Adam and Eve who were innocent. So the... The reject, renounce, and rebuke uh, every Easter in Catholic churches, I'm sure in Lutheran uh, churches as well, we recommit to our baptismal promises. And the formula of the baptismal promises is a rejection. Do you renounce Satan? Do you renounce all of his empty promises? Do you renounce the glamour of evil? And then, do you believe in God the Father? Do you, do you believe in this? So it's in a rejection of the demonic, and it's an affirmation and acceptance of the divine. Uh, and every baptism has a, um, uh, has a ritual exorcism in it as well. So it's, it's, it's a recognition that evil is present and uh, that we need to be careful about what we're allowing in. Uh, a friend of mine was on my board. He said, do you know why we say grace over meals? I said, no, Randy, why do we say grace? He says, because it was, uh, goes back to ancient times, because the food that uh, somebody could have received could have been used in a, a ritual sacrifice, uh, a demonic ritual sacrifice. And you always bless the food to remove anything from it that could have been exposed to the darkness. And I, that was a new one for me. Uh, if you're interested in a book, um, that gets more into this stuff. It, it's, uh, I, I'm a fan of, of, of horror films. And uh, the only one that's ever scared me uh, was called The Conjuring. And it came out about five years ago. 
And it was based on the life work of two Catholic uh, people who are married to each other, Elizabeth, uh, I mean, uh, Lorraine and Ed Warren. And they pioneered the Ghostbusters. So they started with the technology of, of video heat sensors. Uh, Lorraine had, uh, she, could, she could see auras. She, grew, she went to a convent school. She could always see, she knew if somebody was a priest, even if they weren't wearing their collar. Ed grew up in a haunted house. They somehow met after the Second World War uh, and they lived in New England. And uh, Lorraine was a, uh, an artist and she would draw a picture of a house where they had heard that there were possible hauntings. And then Ed would go up to the door and he says, my wife has uh, uh, drawn a picture of your house. Would you like to see it? Well, you come on in. And then that's how their career began by going around to places that were reportedly haunted. Uh, but a, somebody has written a book about their case study. So the, the, uh, the conjuring is, a, is a two stories collapsed into one and they're true stories. So the book is called The Demonologist, The Amazing Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren. So uh, it's worth reading. Uh, they're real case studies that makes you believe that this stuff is real. I would just say, don't read it before you go to bed. <laughs> read it on a sunny beach somewhere where <laughs> there's lots of people around because it's pretty scary. So that's the first we, we have uh, several more questions, really good ones, but I also know you have two more points and we've yeah. got about under 10 minutes. What would, should I ask them now or wait till the, the end? Let me race through these last two points. I'll kind of abbreviate them and then we'll be open up for question. Uh, okay. the, four, the fourth door is contract, making a contract. There are a lot of people who make a contract with the dark world. Uh, there is secret knowledge of the future. Uh, if you read tarot cards and if you've done a deal, made a contract uh, so that you can see the future and you take money for that, uh, then that contract will be pulled in at a later time. You will have to pay for it. Um, it's a working agreement to take money for dispensing secret knowledge uh, and is by McManus's definition, a contract with the dark world. And he affirms that contracts are called in for payment usually at the time of death. And then the fifth door, he says, which is the most rare and the most frightening. He says, demons can choose you. He says, demons are supremely lonely and humans can be very comforting. We are beautiful, we are physical, we are spiritual. And he says, once a demon has decided to choose a specific human subject, uh, and he says, he's very clear that they do pick people. They can be relentless in their pursuit. And while it is incredibly difficult to separate that demonic who has chosen a specific individual, that the power of Christ is sufficient to overcome even the most, the greatest possession. And I like to look at uh, as possession as, uh, as a continuum from mild addiction to full demonic possession. Any place in the human heart where Christ is not living is filled by its opposite, which is antichrist. So all of us are subject to that. And just one final point is on environment. Um, he says demons love places because they have no place. And so places can become infested with the demonic, which is why we people, you know, 
Reverend Peterson, people may ask you to bless a new house or to have their car blessed or if there's something problem. I, I did some of my program in Ireland and a lot of the students used Ouija boards and a lot of bad things happened and they would call the priest in to have the house blessed after some things like that happened. So there is a place. And he said, one of the things is in every place where you live, he calls it line of sight theology. Every place where you're sitting, make sure you can see something holy. So I'll just let that uh, be there and we'll take the questions. I see there's 14 questions in the chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I when I moved into the, the church parsonage, I was told by a former member of the church that it was haunted. And I invited a colleague of mine to do a house blessing with me. And it was a very meaningful sure. uh, um, ritual. And I, I do sleep better at night having done that. And yeah. fortunately, there, there have been no sightings here. Uh, <laughs> One of our questions comes from Todd, the co-founder of GeekWire, a reporter and editor, and it won't be surprising that he asks this. Does the personification or anthropomorphizing of technology as in Siri or Alexa or Cortana further enable these phenomenon you're describing? I guess insofar as they, they, their noise and their, their personal noise, is technology inherently evil or is it merely another portal for us to engage with evil and keep us from being quiet enough to connect with God? Wow. I would say the, the latter part there, nothing is inherently evil. It's, you know, it's the love of money is the root of all evil, not money. So it's how, how a technology is used. And from my understanding, you know, I've, you know, I'm from the era of, you know, eight track tapes and cars and, uh, and then Betamax, you know, before uh, CDs and DVDs before streaming world that the, the Betamax that was developed, the tapes were developed principally for the por porn industry so that people wouldn't have to go out to a, a porn theater. They could bring the porn into their home. And we can do that now big time through the internet. Uh, so oftentimes technologies are driven by sin uh, and by uh, different types of addictive things. So uh, technology is not in of itself evil. It can be used for great evil. And it's the human person that chooses to use it for good or great evil. But you can also be subject to it in terms of like artificial intelligence uh, that you can be read. They know what you want. They know what you want to buy. And they can show you that in all the different things that you're looking at. So you have to just be aware. And there's a great book by Shoshana Zuboff uh, that I think I have here. Uh, it's on technology. She is a um, uh, emerita at the Harvard Business School, uh, and it's on, it's, it's on surveillance technology uh, that that Google and Facebook were developed to harvest information from people. That was their business plan from the very beginning: to collect data on you and to monetize you. And Mark Zuckerberg and all of his big people have known for years that the use of Facebook creates great emotional problems, especially for teenagers. And they do it anyway, because they're making great money off of that. So it's a good book to read. In tandem with that, Jennifer says, I think social media is proof of people working among us. Uh, she says, look at, the, look at all those QAnon followers. How would you respond to that, especially with regard to QAnon? Well, I think people have to be discerning about anything that they see in the world today, because 
everything can look real and it can be totally fake. And it's really hard to know anymore which is which. Uh, and so it, it, it does really require a life of discernment and quiet and prayer. Don't take somebody else's word for it. You do your own spiritual work and listen and find out what's going on. I'd like to ask you, the as we conclude here, uh, the question with which I began, the, the research that you presented uh, has been fascinating to, to learn about. What has surprised you in, in your own journey when it comes to this topic? Uh, what, what surprised me is how easy it is for good people, religious people, to, sub- to be seduced by evil. And I'll just give an example. When I was doing my last phase of uh, formation, a Jesuits call it tertianship. Uh, it's the third probation. I was in Northern Ireland. That's where I had ran, ran into the Ouija boards and uh, some of the dark arts, the fairies and things like that. Um, I was a, um, had developed the biggest retreat program of any college in the, in the country at Georgetown University. Uh, I was a spiritual director, I was creating spiritual programs and I get into making my 30 day retreat and I realized how far I had come. I was doing good things, but I realized that the good things I was doing, it had morphed from a vocation into a career. And the ego around my career was much more predominant than the doing good things. And I think this is why we see in the, in the scriptures, Jesus goes after the scribes and the Pharisees the most because they are the ones who are supposed to be taking care of people and they've allowed their career and their profession and the, and the ego pride in being a religious authority to, to take supremacy over their work of not being equal with God, but, but becoming a slave and a servant. So that for me is kind of the most, uh, the most eye opening is that, is that the people who think they're the holiest can be the most unholy. Wow. I, uh, I, I guess my, my last comment is that uh, when I was at Seattle U, uh, I learned from Bill O'Malley, who was a Jesuit uh, colleague of mine, a professor, and uh, uh, had a minor role in The Exorcist, the original film. Uh, he said that the story was actually uh, based on a real life situation, and it was a, um, a, a Lutheran couple. Who, uh, who couldn't, uh, who weren't successful um, in getting the child uh, exercised. And so they reached up to the Jesuits. And I, it, it makes me, I shouldn't laugh, but it makes me think as Lutheran clergy, we are not educated in any of this. The word exorcism came up never once in my, in my seminary, seminary education. And so it's really fascinating to get this take from a tradition where this particular issue is, is thoroughly considered, um, and it is in our liturgy. Um, could you remind us again of, uh, of the book or, or your website, places people might go for more information about the subject? Yeah, sacredstory.net is our website. We have all sorts of resources, uh, prayer discernment resources there, and you can find everything you need there. And I'll just say this, every single diocese and archdiocese in the United States has an exorcist at least one. Uh, because there are there there are real cases out there. Uh, most of it is mental illness, but there are real stuff out there, and every bishop realizes that they need somebody who can handle these things. Wow. 
Perfect. Uh, you know, on my website for my Jesuit podcast, I interviewed a Jesuit exorcist, Greg Vance, who's down in Boise, uh, Idaho. So you can listen to that uh, uh, interview on my website too. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And speaking of podcasts, you can also hear this uh, episode on as an episode of God for Grownups, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can see the video again at our YouTube channel, Queen Anne Lutheran Church on YouTube. And uh, we invite you to go to those places uh, uh, for review or, or for curiosity. Um, this conversation was made possible by the late Father Peter Ely, who was uh, a colleague and friend of mine, a Jesuit at Seattle University, and attended my installation at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. So in memory of Father Ely and um, with deep gratitude, I want to thank Father Bill Watson for joining us for a fascinating topic and conversation today. Thank you, Thank you all very much. Blessings to all of you. Okay. All right. Take care. Pray. Do your prayers. <laughs> <laughs>